Welcome to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you don't have time, don't know where to start, and you'd quite like someone to do the legwork for you? Your ears are in the right place. This is the Journal Medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup at the top, practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to another journal roundup. What with there being an earth-shattering, once-in-a-generation viral pandemic on, we've been a little slack these last few months keeping you up to date with the latest and greatest medical literature. But we are back to quench your thirst with a cool, refreshing cocktail of practice-changing articles that means sometime in 2021, when your day job involves more than just turning oxygen up and down and prescribing steroids, you'll feel ready to hit the ground running. Here to help us review the last two months of literature are Barney and Katya. Good to see you both again. How are we? Vaccinated? Fed up with lockdown? Bored of doing laps of your local park, maybe? Um, yeah, John, hi. Good to be back. I'm Barney Hirons, as always. I am half vaccinated. Lockdown doesn't really make any difference to me, being locked down at home with children. And I've realised that piñatas are a great socially isolating game. <laughs> socially isolating as in no one wants to play <laughs> yeah, <'cause> <laughs> great game hitting. for socially isolating and nobody else wants to play with you because they're like why are you beating up that weird coloured llama or donkey whatever it is that sounds actually quite fun um yeah i'm katia floorman it feels good to be back i haven't done journal spotting in a while and i'm hoping that maybe does this symbolize possibly the end of covid we finally found the headspace to do this roundup anyway i'm crossing my fingers yeah, you're right, actually. Getting around to doing a roundup might correlate with the end of COVID. Who knows? Heard it here first. We're very excited to be back, and it's nice to be delving into a bit more general medicine. So, Barney, do you want to take us through what we're going to cover today? Absolutely right, John. We have some bloody splendid articles crammed into this episode, which are going to get those uh, journal junkies salivating. What to actually do with type 2 MIs? Why quinolones may be more risky than just C. diff? How skin colour affects oxygen saturations? What? <laughs> Ablate or not in AF? Lots of fascinating feces facts with absolutely no crap puns. And more. Oh, <laughs> gosh. <laughs> what to come. Anyways, before we kick off, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode of your new favourite podcast. Also, if you want to get in touch, then journalspotting at gmail.com Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. So now we're going to start with the blockbuster article of the last two months, I guess. It's not quite last month, is it? Last two months. Barney, what have you got for us? All right, guys, let's dive straight into the big one. The practice changing blockbuster of the last couple of months. John and Katya, when do we thrombolize stroke patients? When the stroke registrar says so. Pretty much. <laughs> In reality, that's. Uh, well, so you have to be within the four and a half hour thrombolysis window. That's what we've always been taught, isn't it? Good. That four and a half hours. I mean, absolutely right. Look, it's been ingrained for some time that we need to instigate thrombolysis within a certain time frame from the onset of symptoms. And usually that's four and a half hours. Beyond this time, uh, they might be a candidate for other options such as thrombectomies, but that is not done everywhere yet. But what about the poor patient who wakes up with a right-sided hemiplegia? Gets to hospital within, say, two hours, 
um, has a plain CT which shows no bleed, what are you going to do? Of course, the issue here is that we have no way of knowing when the stroke came on. It could have happened at, I don't know, 10 o'clock last night or one minute before he woke up. I have always been told, as I think most people have, if the stroke is of unknown onset, do not thrombolize because there's too big a risk of things like bleeding. The Lancet published, intravenous alterplase for stroke with unknown time of onset, guided by advanced imaging, systematic review and meta-analysis of individual patient data. There were actually just four key studies included. These all looked at patients with unknown stroke onset who had either a contrast CT or more commonly a contrast MRI and compared alterplase with either standard of care or placebo. Worth briefly mentioning that all of these studies were stopped early for varying reasons, the latest of which was following the publication of trials showing a benefit of thrombectomy in extended time patients. All right, this meta-analysis pooled data from around 850 patients, and it found the rate of favorable outcome was significantly higher in the outer group than control, with an odds ratio of about 1.49, so pretty significant there was also a significant shift towards a better functional outcome and independent living. Whilst there was an expected higher rate of intracranial hemorrhage with alteplase, and this was around 3%, this rate is actually very similar to when thrombolysis is given within 4.5 hours. There was a slightly higher rate of death with the alteplase group, but this was largely offset by the higher rate of being bedridden or requiring nursing home care in the control group. This meant that with alteplase overall, you are significantly less likely to be in a composite group of dead or severely disabled. The favorable outcome corresponded to a number needed to treat of 12, which isn't at all bad. Uh, Bonnie, as a blockbuster, is this going to change practice? Sounds like it might. Yeah, well, I think it will. I mean, I think there really are two key points here. The first is we need to be using better imaging techniques um, if we are considering a thrombolysis in patients. And that means not just the plain CT, a contrast CT, or possibly an MRI if you can get it. Hospitals are basically going to have to adapt to achieve this. We also need to stop the dogma that strokes of unknown onset cannot be thrombolized. To give them the best chance of not becoming bedridden in a nursing home, we should be getting imaging and considering thrombolysis. Mm. Out of hours MRI scans. Oh, it's easy. It's easy. Just, <laughs> just call your, your friendly radiologist at three in the morning and I'm sure yeah. they'll be straight <laughs> on it. Well, it's either that or we're just going to be doing thrombectomies on everyone, right? Good question, John. And I think to dig into the data on this, we probably need some neurovascular expert to help us out. Don't promise what you can't deliver, Barney. <laughs> Journal junkies, keep your ears peeled. We should have an awesome journal chat coming up on this article and that very topic. We actually, yeah, we were actually told wake up strokes. You've got to send them straight away to stroke center. So maybe yep. it's, it's coming. It's new. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think it's, I think it's new, but I think perhaps the stroke teams are probably already kind of doing this. Yeah. Um, but general medics aren't aware of it. So yeah. Thanks, Barney. Well, sticking to the theme of acute neurological events. I found a paper that seems to be trying to put the X back in tranexamic acid. Um, so would you both ever give tranexamic acid to a patient awaiting transfer to a neurosurgical center for subarachnoid hemorrhage? If the neurosurgical registrar tells you to. Oh, that's a great answer, John. <laughs> we can see how I practice my medicine. monkey, John. Yeah. <laughs> 
I, I, I've always been a big fan of tranexamic acid until recently we realized that actually saying gastrointestinal bleeds, it actually there isn't any benefit. So I'm starting to doubt it a bit more, but I think if I was probably in any doubt, I would err towards giving it. Mm. It seems for many different bleeding presentations, someone is always going to say, what about tranexamic acid? So I think it's quite interesting to look back and through looking back a bit at the literature has been a bit of a point of debate um, in subarachnoid hemorrhage. Tranexamic acid does reduce re-bleeding from aneurysms when patients are awaiting surgical intervention, but this benefit is offset by the risk of cerebral ischemia. And hence, currently, it's only sometimes used in patients who are at high risk of bleeding and when definitive surgical treatment is delayed. Mm, okay. Didn't actually know that was current practice. I probably haven't seen enough subarachnoid hemorrhages. What's new for this in this paper, Katia? So just it's very rarely that it's used. So just if you really have to delay the surgical treatment, which is probably not um, happening that much. Um, but this paper published in The Lancet looks at the effect of tranexamic acid on overall clinical outcome at six months rather than just what happens in the acute phase. So it was a multi-centre perspective randomised controlled trial across 24 centres in the Netherlands over six years. They looked at 950-odd patients with spontaneous CT-proven subarachnoid hemorrhage and randomised them to either no tranexamic acid or tranexamic acid given as one gram bolus immediately and then continued eight-hourly for 24 hours or until aneurysm treatment, whichever came first. So the primary endpoint was clinical outcome at six months, which was assessed by the modified Rankin scale, which is a disability scale. They grouped participants' outcomes into either good, a scale of zero to three, or poor, which is a scale of four to six. This was a quite crude classification of outcome, but in doing this, they showed that there was no statistically significant difference between the two arms. There was also no difference in rate of rebleeding or other adverse effects. So this may not be practice changing, especially as we're not neurosurgeons, but I guess the next time someone presents with subarachnoid hemorrhage, it turns out you actually need to put the X through tranexamic acid. I see what you've done there. Nice. Uh, well, thanks, Katia. I think that's really helpful and continues to remove tranexamic acid from Barney's medical practice, which we can all be thankful for. And next up, I've got an atrial fibrillation doubleheader. Uh, what's that? A collective groan from the listeners about atrial fibrillation. I thought I heard it. I'll be the first to admit that AF isn't the most glamorous topic, but please hear me out. It's kind of like Barney's oxygen, really, me and AF. I feel like I've covered it a lot. The New England Journal published two important AF ablation trials last month, the early AF and the stop AF studies, both RCTs looking at whether ablation for paroxysmal AF as a first-line therapy is better than antiarrhythmic drugs at preventing AF recurrence. Ablation, just to recap, is basically where you take a tiny little lightsaber to the part of the heart causing the F. And I'm pretty certain that's how an electrophysiology consultant would describe it. Um, so when do we actually offer patients ablation at the moment, John? So currently, ablation is offered to patients that fail first-line drug therapy. Uh, but that might be changing. The early AF, which is the bigger of the two trials, was done in Canada, recruited 300 patients and randomized half to receive ablation as first-line therapy. They impressively managed to put an ILR, an intermittent loop recorder, to continuously monitor the heart into every one of the study participants, and they followed them up for a whole year. At one year, 42% of the patients that got ablation first had recurrence of their AF, compared to 67% in the medical therapy group. 
And symptomatic AF recurred in 11% of the ablation group and 26% in the medical therapy group. So the results showed that arrhythmia recurred significantly less with first-line ablation compared to drugs. The number needed to treat was four. And so the key pathological mechanism here might be, it's sort of postulated in the papers, that intervening early prevents cellular changes that progress someone's AF and make it permanent. Okay, so are we going to be referring patients straight to ablation now? Well, uh, the trials aren't fully generalizable yet due to the short follow-up time in these trials, and they didn't include persistent AF or anyone with structural heart disease, but the safety data on ablation was good. So watch this space. Ablation may one day become first-line therapy for paradigmal AF. And before I finish, I just want to plug the New England Journal Review article on atrial fibrillation. That's the plug from the uh, the new cardiology... <laughs> Um, uh, trainee just just so you know listeners congratulations by the way i'm enjoying that <laughs> very good <laughs> i was waiting for that to come up yeah waiting for my moment i'm gonna speak about something that's a little more accessible to all of us as much as i'm sure we want to go around putting lightsabers in people's hearts i'm sure we all know that fluoroquinolones come with their risks things like tendinitis decreased seizure threshold and would you agree aortic aneurysm and dissection in older patients? No, I'd have no idea. Are you about to tell us that it is? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that, but it's been coming out, hasn't it? The last, yeah, last it's been, year, yeah, recently. it's sort of new ish. So the risk of aortic tear was actually only added to the FDA safety warnings of the drugs in December 2018. So, John, I will forgive you that you did not know that um, initially. So, hence, this study in JAMA surgery caught my eye. At first glance, it's another retrospective cohort study telling us what we already know about quinolones and AAA. But on closer inspection, this cohort is aged 18 to 64 years, and the study showed that quinolones can even be dangerous to healthy patients aged 35 and over. 35 and over. Oh, oh, Katia, that's just cruel. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, I've crossed that territory, and uh, luckily I don't have to take superfluxin very often. Yeah, (laughs) I'm... I don't think it's necessarily saying anything about 35-year-olds, but... Um, you can't give ciprofloxin for syphilis, can you? <laughs> go, 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 go. Tell us more. What, what, did they, what did they do? So they they actually included a lot of people, 9 million people who received treatment with fluoroquinolones and 35 million who received other antibiotics. And they uh, retrieved this information from an American insurance claims database and analyzed the instance of aortic aneurysm and dissection within 90 days of antibiotic prescription. The patients had no known previous aortic aneurysm or dissection, no recent antibiotic exposure, nor hospitalization. So they found that fluoroquinolones were associated with increased incidence of aneurysm formation compared with the other antibiotics. And this was true for abdominal, iliac and other aortic aneurysms. The greatest risk was in the need for aneurysm repair as an 88% increase occurred after quinolone exposure. Reassuringly, however, there was actually no excess risk for aortic dissection. But the most practice changing element of this paper was that the results were significant in all the age groups above 34 years and provides a stark warning to all of us prescribing fluoroquinolones that the risk of aneurysmal complications is not just in older patients with comorbidities and hence something we should probably be cautioning all our patients about. Take home message, don't max out on the moxie. Yeah, moxifloxacin is the best antibiotic name. 
just don't skip it out there. I think it's the funniest. I think that's a, I think that's a really good paper. I've learned a lot from that. I think I, I didn't really realize there was such a big risk. Well, not big risk, but I didn't realize there was a risk. I think actually it's absolutely right, isn't it? It's the absolute risk is still tiny, but the relevant risk is much higher. And it, it mm. does make you think about it because it's never talked about. And as a respiratory physician, we give out a lot of ciprofloxacin, et cetera. And mm. um, we should be thinking about it more. So thanks, yeah. that's really good. Barney, over to you for a topic that I think is a father of a two-year-old or a three-year-old as of, as of today. I feel as like of today, you're, yeah. you're, you're an expert on this topic, <laughs> aren't you? Thanks, John. All right. Sometimes, listeners, you have to get down and dirty. I mean, as doctors, we have to get used to, well, poo, pure and simple. From that first PR as a confused medical student in front of a smirking junior doctor to um, that flatus tube, which was Hmm. Messy. Poo is important and tells us a lot. So I have three articles to sludge through on this topic. First up, fit testing. No, not the thing around your wrist, which acts like an expensive pedometer. Fecal immunochemical tests. So these are widely used as screening for occult blood due to colorectal cancer. This study, published in the JAHA, is a nationwide population-based cohort study looking over 6 million participants in South Korea. Patients with known colon cancer or cardiovascular disease were excluded. Over a median follow-up of 6.5 years, the incidence of ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, and all-cause mortality were higher in the FIT-positive group. Adjusted hazard ratios were 1.25 for ischemic stroke, 1.1 for MIs, and 1.15 for all-cause mortality. This was true even when adjusted for obvious confounders, or even if there was already a history of anemia or colorectal cancer. Why? Why? I hear your, your journal junkie cries. <laughs> By the way, listeners, I am sticking with the term journal junkies, and <laughs> despite John's rolling eyes. That's the, that's the third use of it. Third use Counting. of it already. Obviously, it's actually not actually clear at the moment. Cardiovascular disease and colorectal cancer do have some overlapping risk factors, such as diet, smoking, you know, reduced exercise, etc. Also, the study cannot tell us if these patients were already on, say, antiplatelets or anticoagulants for another reason. Of course, as it is observational, it doesn't prove causality, but there certainly appears to be an important link. This could change how we use FIT testing in the future, for example, as part of a uh, cardiovascular risk scoring assessment, and may open back doors for future fecal testing. Just to clarify, Bonnie, I know you said it at the start, but fit testing is fecal occult blood, right? Yeah, it's the, yeah. Um, it's the same as looking for fecal occult blood, but what we, we do fecal immunochemical tests, which are, it's the same sort of thing, but a bit more accurate. Nice. Okay, right. Well, what else can we test from feces then, Bonnie? What's your next study? Well, how about mental disorders? I mean, it's been thought for a while that the gut microbiome can affect neural pathways and mental illness. But the evidence has been based on small studies and met with quite a lot of scepticism. An interesting study published in Science Advances investigated exactly this. They looked at fecal samples from 311 patients with either major depressive disorder or healthy controls. They intricately examined the gut bacteriophages and bacteria in the feces. Essentially, there was a significant difference. There were 47 specific bacterial species three specific bacteriophages, and 50 fecal metabolites, which were significantly associated with major depressive disorder. 
A select combination of these could be used to accurately distinguish those with major depressive disorder and healthy controls. Very interesting, Barney, but surely there are some confounders here. People with severe depression might have poor diets or drink more alcohol, that kind of thing. Well, yes, but they did their best to control for confounders such as smoking, diet and other lifestyle measures. And there was still a significant difference. Importantly, many of the metabolites found are known to be absorbed into the blood, affect neurochemistry and have previously been implicated in major depressive disorder. It also made, may lead to novel diagnostic tools for major depression so that we don't have to rely on our lacking history taking skills. Mm, okay, so we've got cardiovascular disease, uh, gut microbiomes and depression. What's your, what's your final poo, uh, poo study? <laughs> right, last poo fun fact from the last couple of months. PZL1 is a protein expressed by some cancers, which tricks the body's immune cells into not attacking the cancer cells. There are targeted therapies such as pembrolizumab, which can help prolong lives in cancers such as melanoma and many others. This fascinating study, published in Science, looked at melanoma patients who had not responded to pembrolizumab. They performed fecal transplants using feces from donors who had previously responded to pembrolizumab and then treated the patients again. Six out of the 15 then responded favorably to pembrolizumab and their gut microbiome shifted to that of the fecal donor. I'm not going to confess to understanding the ins and outs of how this works, but in this tiny study, it seems to, and we can wait to see the bigger RCTs coming our way. So listeners, next time you press and hold the flush, spare a thought for the brown stuff speeding down the pipes. It may possibly hold the answers to helping diagnose a variety of conditions and may even be the pungent key to treating resistant cancers. Oh, you think I was done? There is actually one more practice-changing poo fact. Would you like to hear it? Can we say no? <laughs> no, you can't say no. <laughs> Go on. Wombats have square poos. Oh, that's quite good, actually. Yeah, yeah they do. Um, yeah. Uh, this is a poo book which my son has, who was too. And uh, yeah, I learned quite a lot from it. Fantastic. Did, was it for him or for you, the book? It was mainly for me, but, uh, you know, I read it to him sometimes. <laughs> Excellent, Barney. Well, I'm going to try and drag this podcast out of the sewer. Um, you can try. I'm gonna try. So if you're first on the scene to a hospital cardiac arrest, what do you need to check? Your prejudice, it seems, from this study. Let me explain. This is an observational cohort study from the Swedish reg registry of CPR. Basically, it's the Swedish version of the Recess Council. Suspect they... Don't ask you for £400 every four years to spend a day in a lecture theatre doing CPR, though. Mate, not bitter at all, are you? Tangential, but anyone who's tried booking an ALS course last minute can surely relate. Anyways, this study took all patients that had in-hospital cardiac arrest over a 13-year period. When adjusting for lots of confounders, age, gender, ethnicity, hospital, year, comorbidity, and cause of the cardiac arrest... They showed that patients from higher socioeconomic status were less likely to receive delayed CPR, which they described as CPR, which was started after one minute of discovering the patient. So higher socioeconomic status, they got CPR faster. Patients with higher education were also more likely to be alive at discharge with a good neurological outcome and be alive after 30 days compared with patients from lower educational backgrounds. So one possible cause for this difference is that highly educated patients and higher income patients were more likely to have their heart rhythm monitored before cardiac arrest. It makes sense that if you have cardiac monitoring, you're probably going to get CPR faster. Now, 
There are clear differences in outcomes after controlling for the major demographic, clinical, and contextual factors. The magnitude, like, it's not huge. The survival odds difference is 21% for 30-day survival. But doing the maths, that's enough to account for 181 of the approximately 14,000 deaths of low-educated patients that were reported that could be attributed to educational level. The authors did try to control for everything they could, but we can't rule out other medical confounders. Nonetheless, I think the link to heart rate monitoring makes the trial worth taking note of. It seems important that we kind of check our own prejudices as well as people's pulse when managing critically unwell patients from a lower socioeconomic status. I'm wondering how they knew the time from the heart stopping to starting CPR. I'm surely that's just a guess, unless you are actually on a cardiac monitor. Yeah, I mean, it's all based on documentation and it's not a perfect study, but there's a signal that I think the fact, the lack of cardiac monitoring for patients before CPR is, is pretty significant. Well, I think we often look at these things and um, and it's very difficult. I mean, when you look at race or socioeconomic status and all these things, and you find these really important key findings and they're usually multifactorial and very difficult to piece apart. Nevertheless, mm. there are, you know, statistics which show it. So, uh, yeah, fascinating. Thanks, John. Yeah. Definitely something to think about. I know our listeners like to keep their fingers on the pulse or lack of it as above and never like to miss a beat. So yes, I'm going to talk about another cardiac study. This one from the Journal of the American Heart Association and type 2 MIs. So as we know, type 2 myocardial infarctions occur as a result of mismatch between myocardial oxygen supply and demand. And there aren't any specific cardiac treatment guidelines for them. Absolutely right. I find these actually are so common and the sort of thing you throw in the cardiology registrar and, and they're just like, as a type 2 MI, we don't want to have anything to do with it. And yet that never feels quite right. So Exactly. exactly. Well, you're going to like this study then, Barney. Um, this retrospective cohort study sought to find out if doing something, and for them that was giving cardiac medications, um, which are usually reserved for type 1 MIs and congestive cardiac failure might actually help reduce mortality in those with type 2 MI. So they looked at the relationship between the total number of cardiac drugs given after emergency room attendance for chest pain and yearly mortality rates in the follow-up period. So how did they do that, Katya? Well, they characterized each of the almost 4,000 included patients into either type 1 MI, type 2 MI, acute myocardial injury or chronic myocardial injury and then totaled up the number of cardiovascular medications that those patients were prescribed in the 180-day period post-ED attendance. The drugs included were ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, statins, platelet inhibitors, and beta blockers. Okay, interesting. Okay, so what, what, what sort of results did they find? Well, what I found initially striking was that 27% of the patients died within the mean follow-up period of 3.1 years, demonstrating the importance of any mortality reduction found for this group. And to set the scene, approximately 15% of patients in the chronic myocardial injury and type 2 MI groups did not receive any cardiovascular medications at all during the period. The most interesting take home was that for those with type 2 MI, if they were on two to three or four medications, they had a 50% and 57% respectively, lower rate of mortality than those taking zero to one medications. Okay, that sounds, that sounds pretty significant, Katia. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there were obviously many limitations to the study, the fact that it had observational methods. They also relied on discharge records only, so they didn't have information on patients' lifestyle factors such as smoking and exercise, or clinical data such as angiography, which may both have been confounding factors. Okay, so yeah, interesting, but I don't know, is it going to change our practice, do you think? Not immediately, but it does pave the way for further prospective intervention studies looking at specific cardiac medications in treatment of type 2 MI. And I think actually what's more important is it, it cautions us as clinicians on the ground to take type 2 MI seriously and look for and aggressively treat modifiable cardiovascular risk factors in these patients. It definitely makes you think that these patients should be at least followed up and have some sort of further investigation. Yeah, they did. They did mention that as well. They said yeah. a lot of it was that patients were coming to ED presented with diagnosed with a non type one MI and they're never followed up. And that mm. might be part of the problem. Mm. I think that's absolutely right. No, I guess it's a good call to. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Brilliant. Nice. Okay. Uh, thanks for that, Katia. Well, I'm just going to move us on. If I was to say what the best things to come out of Italy were, you'd probably say mozzarella, excellent football defensive systems and straight roads, I imagine. But I don't think you would say bariatric surgery data. I don't think you would, would you, Barney? Bariatric surgery data in Italy. I would. I'm really au fait with the uh, (laughs) Italian um, (laughs) bariatric stuff. I mean, you know, all about it. There is a bunch of data out there suggesting that bariatric surgery could be a treatment for type 2 diabetes, resulting in major short to midterm improvements in hyperglycemia and prolonged disease remission. This group of Italians certainly think bariatric surgery might be curative for type 2 diabetes as they presented the results of a randomized control trial with a 10-year follow-up, which is the longest follow-up we've got to date in this type of study. Patients in the study either got bariatric surgery, which was either a Rouen-Y gastric bypass or a biliopancreatic diversion, or the third arm, they got medical therapy plus some quite intensive lifestyle intervention for the treatment of advanced type 2 diabetes. All the patients, all 60 of them in the trial, were between 30 and 60 years, BMI over 35, and had fairly advanced type 2 diabetes with half of them already being on insulin. The results are striking. Surgery resulted in higher 10-year remission rates and fewer diabetes-related complications compared to the medical group. 50% of the biliopancreatic diversion patients and 25% of the Rouen-Y patients were in remission from their type 2 diabetes with only 5% of the medical therapy patients in remission. In addition, the surgical patients lost way more weight and had much lower cardiovascular risk, lower plasma lipids, and better quality of life. Now, before we refer everyone to your local bariatric surgeon, I just want to caveat that the study size is very small, but this data will certainly pave the way for a more open conversation about referring patients with hard-to-control type 2 diabetes and obesity, for the consideration of bariatric surgery. Yeah, I think this is this has been sort of talked about for a while. There's these sorts of um, the benefit of surgery over uh, medication, and more and more we're realizing that it's important. Also, very good for if you've got obesity hypoventilation syndrome. That's mm. just so you know. Um, it looks like we might need to learn our you know the difference between our real and wise and our BPDs sooner or later. <laughs> okay, right back to some. Good old respiratory. I'm going to talk about oxygen <clears throat> again. All right. <laughs> in the BTS oxygen prescribing guidance, somewhere in the small print, it states that saturations above 90% in unwell patients is probably safe. However, 
as peripheral oxygen saturations measured by a pulse oximeter can be off by up to 4%, we should aim for 94% to be safe. Views on this are changing, but it's worth remembering that those SATs probes are not always correct. Also, like most tests which have been around for a while, they were validated in rather non-diverse populations. Factors like reduced peripheral perfusion play a part in giving falsely low readings. Um, some nail varnish seems to call, ha cause havoc as well. But what about race or skin colour? This study looked at two large cohorts. 10.5 thousand readings from the Michigan cohort where they could adjust for possible confounders like age, sex and cardiovascular illness at the time. Then there was a multi-centre cohort of 37,000 readings, but they didn't have the data so they could adjust for confounders. They looked at all patients who had a peripheral oxygen saturation, that's an SPO2, of 92 to 96%, and compared this to their arterial saturations, SAO2, as measured by an ABG taken within 10 minutes of the SPO2 reading. They compared black versus white patients. So... In the Michigan cohort, when the peripheral saturations were 92 to 96%, the arterial saturations were found to be less than 88% in 11.5% of black people, but only 3.6% of white people. Findings were almost exactly the same in the much larger unadjusted cohort. This means that black people have three times the frequency of occult hypoxia as white people. Gosh, that's quite striking. Yeah, that, I'm shocked by those results. I think this is fascinating. We are constantly wondering why black and ethnic minority groups have worse outcomes in medicine. For instance, in COVID. The cause is certainly multifactorial. But could this be another piece to the puzzle? Yeah, awesome, Barney. That, that's really interesting. And I, I think does feel very relevant with what we're seeing in the difference in outcome in COVID. Um, Katia, I think you've also got something pretty topical to share with us. Yes, John, well done. This is just a quick word on topical steroids and osteoporosis. And apologies, I found another Northern European cohort study, of which there are actually many when you, when you start looking, and it does really make you think about bias in medical research, but I think we'll save that for another day. Anyway, they looked at over 700,000 adults with a mean age of 52 years who used potent or very potent topical corticosteroids. They demonstrated an increased risk of both osteoporosis and major osteoporotic fracture in a dose-dependent manner. For example, the relative risk of doubling topical corticosteroid dose was 3%. This is a rather low number, but if you think about the volume of prescriptions for topical corticosteroids, it can become significant. They found that the population attributable risk of osteoporosis was actually 4.3% and major osteoporotic fracture 2.7%. No, I think, that's, I think that's interesting, Katia. And it kind of plays into this idea of topical steroids and possible you know, asthma inhalers. We kind of are so used to saying, oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But actually, there is some evidence that um, in a, you know, a small proportion, but a significant proportion, it, um, it can lead to things like osteoporosis and fractures. So thanks. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Especially, yeah, especially when they're such common therapies, it's something to actually Absolutely. think about. Brilliant. John, we are into the tail end of the show where your jokes and puns get worse and worse and uh, the papers get more esoteric. So what's left in the fascinating journal spotting pile? 
Yeah, medics beware. Coming to a medical take near you. A referral for acute appendicitis. As some of you undoubtedly are aware, antibiotics are an effective and safe alternative to appendectomy for managing uncomplicated acute appendicitis. But questions remain over the regimen and the dosing of those antibiotics. I mean, could we even be aiming for an oral antibiotic? It's possible. The APAC-2 study, which was published in JAMA, is a multi-center non-inferiority RCT to see if there is an optimal antibiotic regimen, including an oral option. 600 patients between the ages of 18 and 60 were enrolled and followed up after one year. They all had acute appendicitis confirmed on CT with no signs of complications. Treatment success defined by the study is worth noting is discharge from hospital without surgery and no recurrent appendicitis within one year. The patients that were treated with oral moxifloxacin only for seven days had a treatment success of 70.2% versus 73.8% for those that got ertapenem IV for two days, followed by levofloxacin and metronidazole for another five. Although the results are good for both treatment groups, the success rates are high, the oral antibiotics statistically didn't show non-inferiority to the IV antibiotics. But this might just actually be a statistical quirk rather than a sort of clinically significant finding. However, despite this, it does show that the vast majority of the patients that were on oral antibiotics avoided surgery and did not experience complications attributable to at least a trial of oral-only antibiotics. So it seems unlikely that these patients are going to have the pleasure of having their thyroid function checked by coming in under the medics. But it's worth being aware that there is now growing and robust evidence that non-operative management treatment for simple appendicitis could be offered as part of informed decision-making in clinical care. And who knows, maybe one day they'll all get oral antibiotics. And if they're given moxifloxacin, they may have an aortic <laughs> aneurysm a few years later. Uh, this is interesting. A few years ago, I had appendicitis and I was just wondering, what would I do if they offered me antibiotics for the surgery? And even though I'm quite opposed to surgery, generally, I was at the time I was like, that's nah, fine, just, yeah crack on, cut it out. So yeah. it'll be interesting to get a bit more data and then if that's going to change our practice. Brilliant. Yeah, the thing to say is, I guess this is specifically for uncomplicated. So we're not going to see it all the time, but it's, you know, definitely going to become relevant. Yeah, it could be coming. Speaking of relevant or maybe less relevant things, we've got our um, irrelevantly relevant article for the month. Uh, Bonnie, have you got anything for our listeners to take away? Yeah, it wouldn't be a journal spotting roundup without it, but I'll keep it short. Okay. How about some STI fun facts? So in the journal, Sexually Transmitted Diseases, they published that at any given time in 2018, one in five people in the USA had a sexually transmitted infection. This looked at um, a combination of prevalence and incidence. And I find the figures quite startling, but maybe that's just me being a prude. Um, about 98% of the prevalent and 93% of the incident STIs were made up of chlamydia, trichomonas, genital herpes, and HPV. Other infections included were sexually transmitted HIV and hepatitis. About half of these infections were in the age range 15 to 24. And I don't have the exact figures for the UK, but it looks like we're not far off this at all. Now, considering the USA has over 300 million people in it, I mean, that's a lot of STIs, isn't it? That That is a lot. That, <laughs> uh, that is good to be, you know, to think about. But 
how exactly is this practice changing, Barney? <laughs> well, think about STIs in your differential when people are presenting with, well, anything really. And um, stay sexy safe, journal junkies. Start to get journal junkies in there one more time. <laughs> That's four times. That's four times. It's definitely in. Well, there we go. Out with a bang. I think that might be a pun. I'm not sure. <laughs> journal spotters, journal spotters, uh, shall we share our favourite practice changing points from the episode? Uh, Barney, want to go first? What's your vote for? Okay, John, I'm going to go for one of my own and one of the others. I think uh, tranexamic acid in bleeding. I know it's not... I, clear but it's going to make me stop and think about certainly think a bit harder about whether i should be doing that in in you know cranial intracranial bleeds and from my one i i think this idea of the saturation is not being correct when you're looking at different races is really key and really important and i want to see more data on it mm, nice katya thanks john my two favorite practice changing points are going to be that actually maybe push to try and refer that patient with AF for ablation. I think that's really interesting. And also just think about cardiovascular risk factors in those patients with type 2 MIs on the ward. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to go with thrombolysis outside of the four and a half hour window. I think that's going to really change our practice in the future or in the near term, actually. So mm. there we go. Nobody wins, I think. No one... Did anyone get... Two votes? No. It's all practice. We all, we all win, John. We all we, win. That's not about taking part, is it? But you know, <laughs> we all win. <laughs> On that note, listeners, thank you very much for tuning in and um, all the best. Yeah, thanks. That's great. Have a lovely pancake day, guys. See you later. See you later. You've been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animation from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Floorman animations expert Costa, and awesome promotion team Abby and Isabel. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? If you have any feedback or questions, then get in touch, journalspulsing at gmail.com. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.